TorahCafe.com. Bible criticism and Judaism. How do we respond? Do you know how many critics it takes to change a light bulb? No one. Uh, they will not change the light bulb. They don't know how. But you can be sure that the moment they see somebody else changing the light bulb, they will immediately criticize the way he's doing it. He's not doing it the right way. That's a critic. And then you have the other side of uh, criticism, where there was this uh, art critic who happened to pass by a big canvas, and he stood there over art, his eyes popped out, says, wow, how exciting. It really grips your soul. Whoa. But what is it really show? It's just the colors, the, 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 the flames, the fire of it. And the artist stands next to him and says, huh? That's the canvas on which I cleaned off my brushes. <laughs> um, very often it works out that way. Criticism, especially when you talk about literary criticism, is a very haphazard uh, subject, which personally I never understood it. I can, I realize more or less what you're doing. It's a very prominent course in literature courses, English literature, other literatures, and, and so forth, where they try to analyze certain works, certain writings. And it's not just a reviewer who will tell you what they think of it, whether they like it or they dislike it, whether it's exciting or it's not exciting. Um, no, they try to look for deeper messages, subliminal messages. Uh, they will look for sources, what was he influenced by, etc., etc. Now, very often what happens is that they may come to the author and say, you know, this is very great, and I recognize that you must have read A and B and C, and the impact of their writings and their philosophy and their outlook is quite notable in your works. And the author may, like the art artist of the previous uh, anecdote, look at them, huh? Never even heard of those people. Never even saw those books. Uh, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Then the literary critic will very often respond and says, uh, you know, I don't care. Once you have written a book and once the book has been published, once it's on the market, we will tell you what the book is about. I don't care what you had in mind, I don't care what your purposes were, I don't care what your goals and objectives and aims were. Once it's the market, we are going to analyze it the way we see it according to the ground rules that we have, la have laid down. Now, on one hand, very nice, I mean, it's like so many other subjects in the world, isn't psychology, sociology, anthropology, are they not very much the same thing? Uh, where you, in the social philosophies, the social sciences, uh, you develop certain theories, and then you, because you have seen certain data, and then you expect that everything has to live up to those. And therefore, indeed, they discover very often that they were barking up the wrong tree, and they have to drastically revise whatever they were talking about. But still, they have fun. You want to take your text, your literature, and analyze and criticize it, uh, go through the details, and even develop that into a whole so-called science um, with certain rules, what they're looking for, and so forth. Fine and good. But obviously, uh, no, nobody really cares. No, it doesn't really make it much difference, except for the academic. You know, somebody locked up in an ivory tower, uh, having nothing else to do, like PhD. Uh, theses. 
Uh, you work for that a year, two years, three years, and you have you pass an examination on it, and you're very proud of it, and then it's put in the university library, and it's gathering dust there for two centuries thereafter, nobody except for the author himself uh, looking at it again. But when it comes to criticizing works which have special meaning to people, like, for example, a Bible, Bible criticism, then, of course, it becomes a different story. Then the criticism is not merely what certain individuals think about it and how they would like to analyze it and what conclusions they draw, because whatever they say now will definitely have an impact upon those people for whom this is a sacred text. Uh, whether it's a Torah for us or it's a different Bible for different religions, it doesn't matter. Let's analyze, first of all, uh, the two things here. Number one, um, very often when it comes to religion, we have a tendency of saying, you know, I don't care what the scientists say, I don't care what the critics say, this is what I was told, this is what I believe. We don't ask questions, they have questions, good luck to them, I'm not, I, I don't even want to hear the questions. Um, and very often we think that this is the basic religious approach, what we call faith. A faith, however, in English also has two different meanings. Faith can be, indeed, that you accept certain things, and ultimately everything that we accept and everything that we acknowledge, even in science, is an act of faith. There is no such thing as absolute proof. Does not exist, never did exist, does not exist, never will exist. Because all that we can do is filter it through our minds, which are finite. You have higher intelligence, lower intelligence, name it what you like, but proof beyond the shadow of a doubt is something which does not exist. Scientific method is really not about absolute certainty, but more about probability. Probability as opposed to possibility. Probability, of course, can very often reach a level of certainty. And it has reached a level of certainty for each and every one of us. There isn't a scientist on Earth who can prove that uh, the elevator that has been installed in a certain building is 100% foolproof. Or some airplane is 100% foolproof. Every so often, unfortunately, we open a newspaper and you read about certain things. And then immediately they say, well, the plane should have been foolproof, the elevator should have been foolproof, the building which wasn't supposed to cave in should have been foolproof, so if it did cave in, if it did crash and so forth, there must have been something wrong and they start investigating. And ultimately, all of us accept that. The proof you have, you go into elevators, you go into airplanes, you go into cars. We are literally risking our life every step we take. Even this very moment, you, right now, you are risking your life sitting here. Not because I'm here, uh, but because of the, uh, the ceiling over you and the floor under you. Any guarantees that the ceiling is not going to cave in within the next half hour? Or the floor? In my college, the very first lecture I gave, for the given, you know, tried to make an impression, all that, in the lecture many years ago, and I made this point because in philosophy there is a subject which is called epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do you know anything? And ultimately, there is no answer to that question. And I brought out this point. I said, there's no guarantee that the ceiling here is not going to cave in within the next half hour. And there's no one who can give me absolute knowledge that this is not going to happen. And everybody in the auditorium, ha, 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 finished the lecture, we left. Five minutes after we left the, the auditorium, guess what happened? 
They swear to this day I set it up. <laughs> Just to prove my point. Um, you can be skeptical about things. When I say that there's no absolute proof, that does not mean that we have to be skeptical. If somebody wants to be skeptical, be my guest. But if you're truly, honestly skeptical, and everything, the key word is truth and honesty, if you're truly, honestly skeptical, then you have to become skeptical about your skepticism as well. And once you do that, then of course it's... You, you can't even open your mouth anymore. You can't do anything. You can't, you can't move one, one limb, whatever it may be. So we're not going to play games and say you can't prove it, so therefore, gotcha. No, that's not what it's all about. If we rely on certain things in science, if we rely on certain things in philosophy, where literally our life is at stake, day after day and all day long, then don't play games and say, here I accept the science, I do go to my doctor, I do go into, into a car, I do go into the airplane, I do go into the elevator, etc., etc., etc. But when it comes to touch something about religion, hey, you're off limits. There I do not listen to what you, you don't know what you're talking about. That's playing a double standard game, you can't do that. Uh, so faith is not necessarily something the way it's normally perceived as blind faith. There is such a thing as blind faith. In English we call it credulity. Credulity means uh, you simply accept what somebody tells you because either you like the person or you like his message, uh, whatever it is. So therefore, yes, why not? Uh, but you have no substance, no reason, no evidence for it whatsoever. Then there is uh, where, yes, it makes sense. I cannot prove it one way or the other, but you can't prove. The doctor can't prove to me why the aspirin or the other medication helps. But I take his word for it because of his experience, because of his past experiments and what have you. Uh, Judaism demands very much this type of faith. Yes, faith plays a big role in Judaism. Emunah is a fundamental principle. But Emunah in Judaism does not mean simply close your eyes and accept what they tell you. As a matter of fact, the, the English translation for Emunah faith is not really a good translation. The Hebrew word Emunah comes from a root which really means to train. To train, to raise, to educate. Uh, in, a, in a certain way, not to simply accept the things. Uh, in the Torah, it is a f basic commandment of your data, you shall know this day and take to heart all these fundamental principles, even about existence of God, unity of God. We have never suggested to just close your eyes. One of the most famous early Hasidic sages from the third generation, one of the most best-known best names in Hasidic history, is that of Reb Leib Yitzhak of Badichev. He was a disciple of the Magid of Mesrich, who was the disciple and the success of the Baal Shem Tov. And he is known for his, besides having been a great genius and a great scholar and so forth, but mainly he's known for his hours, his soil, his love for fellow Jew. He, he could never hear anything bad and negative. If he saw the most negative thing in the world, he would, would give it a positive twist to interpret it favorably. But he did not grow up a Hasid. He did, don't forget, the movement was new at that time. He grew up in an environment which was not only not Hasidic, but also opposed to Hasidism. And he pursued a life uh, like most young men at that time, continuing his studies, uh, those who were qualified for it. Uh, his father-in-law supported them. He sat there in the Besamedash learning. And one day he met up with, uh, some say it's with Shmok of Nicholsburg, who later became a senior colleague of his, and he heard about this new Hasidic movement, and this great uh, charismatic teacher, Rabbi, Rabbi Dov Bear, the Magid of Mesrich, 
and he was so enthused about what he heard, he was, I want have to hear more, I have to learn more. Um, Mesrich, however, from where he lived was quite a distance. So he went to his father-in-law and he asked permission, do you mind if I take off for about a year and go to Mesrich to learn there? Absolutely not. These, these new, you know, these Hasidim and so forth. What did they do? Uh, uh, Kiddush, uh, national retreat, having fun, going out there, etc., etc. Uh, that's what Hasidism is all about, having a good time. Um, you want to study serious study? There are plenty of scholars all around here. Why do you have to go waste your time there? But he kept nagging and nagging and nagging until finally gave him permission. But he made a condition. You have to be back in exactly six months. Six months? It will probably take him at least one to two months to get there, one or two months to get back. And so how much time is he left there? But better than nothing. He goes, and as promised, exactly six months later, he comes back. And as he comes home, his father-in-law looks at him mockingly and says, No, Levi Yitzhak, you have been away now for six months. What did you learn there? What did you discover in Mesrich? And he looks at his father-in-law and says, Now that I have been in Mesrich, now I know that God exists. Huh? He married off his daughter to an atheist, an agnostic. What happened here? It took him now to discover it. Now he believes. He says, what? He says, yes, now that I've been in Mesrich, now I know that God exists. For that you had to go to Mesrich? He called in the maid, a young girl, 12 years old, 13 years old, helped out there in the house. He took her to the window and he pointed out to the picture of nature that you could see through the window. The hills, the meadows, the trees, the flowers, the beautiful sky, everything. And he points at all these things and says to the girl, tell me, where do all these things come from? Huh? Don't you know? From God. So he asked her, do you mean God exists? You mean God is real? She looks at him, of course. What's with you? Aren't you Jewish? Don't you know? Of course God exists. So now he turns to Rebbe Levitzon and says, you see, she never went to Mesrich. Not only did she not go to Mesrich, she never went to Yeshiva, there were no girls' schools in those days at all. She never went to any place. And she knows God exists, and you had to waste six months going to Mesrich for that? So Rebbe Levitzon looks at him with a smile. He says, Sylvia, you don't understand. She says God exists. I know God exists. We say lots of things. We affirm many things. And why? Because simply we have been trained to do so. But just because we say them and repeat them and have been told to say them and repeat them and so forth does not make it so. What is the Bible? When Bible critics come to us, I cannot simply dismiss them. After all, they're not a bunch of idiots, let's face it. All have PhDs. That should be Samsung. It means something. What PhD stands for? Pop has no. Um, so I can afford to send you to college. Um, so they, they have PhDs, they are academics, and some are really uh, quite serious academics. Uh, to us, of course, the Bible is a sacred text. And any attack on it, even the slightest, has to shake us up. The significance of Bible is very simple, because without Bible, there is no Judaism. Without Bible, there is no religion, period. People think that what does religion mean? Religion means you believe in God. No. 
To believe in God has nothing whatsoever to do with religion. You can be a totally non-religious person and still believe in God. Um, you may make a simple calculation, like uh, some philosophers did, in terms of proving existence of God. There's a cosmological argument, ontological argument, teleological argument, and each of these subdividing into different other components. Um, so you can prove, in a way, philosophically, logically existence of God. And after you have proven that God exists, you can still shrug your shoulders and say, so what? So God exists, therefore what? Absolutely nothing. It means nothing. In fact, in philosophy and theology, there are two schools. One is called deism and the other one is called theism. Both words mean exactly the same thing. Except one comes from the Latin deus and the other one comes from the Greek theos. Both technically meaning godism. Meaning go both speak about God. But the deist, what we identify as deism, says the following. Of course God exists. After all, you do need some kind of a first cause, some kind of a prime mover that is responsible and accountable for everything that exists. And yes, even God created the world, because after all, where did the world come from? Even if matter basically could be eternal, but we see there are certain things which definitely nobody thinks that the human species is eternal, or any animal species is eternal. It may have taken millions and billions of years to evolve and what have you, but it did have a certain point in time where it begins. Now, what brings it about? Simple evolution cannot explain. Simple evolution can ch explain changes from one uh, level of matter to another level of matter, but to, from non-organic matter and non-intelligible matter and so forth, you can't suddenly have pop out something which has organism, uh, is organic, and uh, is, has intelligence, etc., etc. One of the basic rules in logic is ex nihilo nihil fit, nothing can come out of nothing, so there must have been something before that which had all these qualities which is unresponsible. And so the deist goes on with the argument, he's willing to accept God exists, he's willing to accept God created the world, but then he says, so what? After God created the world, how long can you deal with this? It's no fun after a while. You play with your Lego set, this beautiful structure, everything, other games that you play. After a while you get fed up. And especially those human beings, I mean, they're funny creatures. They keep messing up and messing up and messing up regardless how much you tell them and you straighten them out, etc. So God probably gave up on us a long time ago. And besides, he got bored and they went off to happier hunting grounds to start some different universes, who knows what. In plain English, what they're saying is just because God exists and God is even accountable for the world, does not mean that therefore I have any connection with God or that God has any connection with me. Now obviously that is not religion. Religion is all about theism, and it's the same word again, but the significant mark of religion is God is related to the world, the world is related to God. There is interaction. There is a personal God. Now a person may believe there is a personal God, and guess what, still have no religion. There are many preachers and so forth who use the philosophical arguments to prove existence of God and say, see now, I've proven to you God exists. And I can go into further details that there is only one God and this and that and that. So now get down on your knees and start worshipping. I would shrug my shoulders and say, why, what for? You tell me God exists, fine, I accept it. You tell me God is a personal God, God cares about me, thank you very much, I appreciate that God. Nice meeting you. But where does, where does it come in that therefore I have to worship God or that I stand in a certain relationship with God? That is nonsense. So even if you have God, even if you have a personal God, 
Still, you do not have religion. Religion you can only have if and when you have a concept of revelation. What means revelation? God revealing to you that there is a relationship. God stating there is a relationship. Because without God telling me there is a relationship, how would I know how to relate to God? Absolutely not what's no way of whatsoever. Today you hear a lot about this new age and uh, this uh, pop psychology and this spiritualism, this search for self-realization uh, and relating to this great cosmos and this great spirit and the love and God, yes, even call it God, whatever. And I have to express this and I have to feel this and I have to get into, put my soul on fire in order to relate to that. Sounds very, very nice and very good and they're quite sincere and they mean it and they're really looking for something, really looking for something. And then they go out of their way and develop all kinds of systems. And this happens within Judaism as well. All kinds of systems on how you can really turn your soul on fire. To really feel excited. Like this, you go to shul. What do you do? Give your sitter. Open up. <laughs> I go through the motions, like a robot, literally. And the moment I finish, oh, off to the breakfast buffet and what have you. And life goes on. There, where they make this a spiritual experience, a spiritual reality, it's a different, a different story. However, that sounds all nice and good, and I appreciate that. But on the other hand, it could be totally worthless. There was a movie, I don't know how many years ago, probably in the 80s, 70s, I don't remember. Uh, I was just fascinated by the title and then what I heard about it, called Fatal Attraction. You heard of that? Fatal attraction? Uh, we won't go into details, there's some minors around here. Um, but to make a long story short, there was this fellow who went out, met this, uh, this uh, woman, and they had a one night stand, and uh, that was it. To him, this was just another adventure. It meant nothing. To her, however, no, this is, this is the man of my dreams, this is my soulmate, this is, this is the one who has to be it. Um, but he tried to get rid of her. But she would not let go. And she went after him and after him and after him. So I think to put it in some thriller. The details I don't know, it's just the basic structure. But I, I love that basic structure. Because to me, this becomes a very fundamental idea and notion. So much so that I've given it a name called the Fatal Attraction Syndrome. What is Fatal Attraction Syndrome? That for whatever reason, you have one party getting fixated on another party. Meaning well, etc. The whole, the whole works. And then they expect that because I'm fixated on you, so therefore you must now become fixated on me as well. Can you imagine going over to a boy or a girl and say, look here, you're beautiful, you're handsome. Wow, I've fallen in love with you. And since I have fallen in love with you, so therefore I now expect that you must reciprocate and love me back. When I say it to the girls in my class, whatever it is, if they're smart, they say, sure, thank you so much. I'm really flattered by your compliment. More likely, uh, they are, most of them are polite and say, sorry, sir, I'm already spoken for. Still more likely, and what they should really answer, get lost. <laughs> Leave me alone, you're a stalker, etc., etc. Fatal attraction is stalking. Guess what? Can you imagine if that is the reality here on earth, that this is the reality up there as well. That God may also say to us, get lost. 
You're not my type. You don't turn me on one bit. And God does say that. God does say that. You may have all the best intentions in the world, mean it well. God, I'm looking for spirituality. I'm looking to hook up with you, to connect, to, beco to become unified with you. It all works. And I'm going to build for you the most beautiful edifice that all the medieval cathedrals are nothing compared to that. And I'm going to bring the greatest uh, symphony orchestra there to play the most beautiful hymns that you can possibly imagine. It's the most beautiful, the most expensive, the most elaborate, the most, 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 whatever most is. And God will turn around and say, sorry, get lost. That's not what I'm looking for. I appreciate your goodwill. And you're all familiar with the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's good intentions, but it's still a one-way road going to a certain place. Shall be talking about that tomorrow. <laughs> um, this is realistic. There's only one and one alone who can tell us what he expects, what he wants, what is acceptable to him, and that is God alone. And that is revelation, and that is what the Bible is. A Bible is God, in effect, telling us, ladies and gentlemen. This is what I expect from you. This is what I shall do for you, and this is what I expect from you in, in turn. This is not because it's a tit-for-tat relationship, but because I've created you for a certain purpose, for a certain goal. This is your mission in life. This is how you have to carry out your mission. Here I'm giving you guidelines. Here you're getting a manual on how to live your life, and that will make you acceptable to me, and that will make me really love you. I'll love you anyway, like your parents love children anyway, and especially when they don't deserve it. Um, so, but, but that is the only way that you can achieve that which you're looking for. The other thing is, like some of the things on the buffet table, it looks so nice and attractive till you put it in your mouth. Um, and even if you put it in your mouth, it may still be very tasty, but it doesn't really fill your stomach. It's nice and fluffy and beautiful, etc., etc., but there's no substance, there's no reality to it. Torah, Revelation, is that what it's all about. Now, Revelation has a problem. Obviously, without Revelation, there's no, no religion. Uh, revelation has a problem, however, because there are so many competing claims about Revelation. There's a whole supermarket display. We Jews, of course, claim you have the Torah. Half the level of Abdullah's Christianity claims after the New Testament. The Muslims claim they have the Quran. Uh, the others who claim the Bhagavad Gita. Others say have the Mahayana, the Theravada, the Vedas, the Rig Vedas, the Upanishads, you name it. You have literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens. And each one claiming, of course, because without that it's worthless, each one claiming this is the word of God. This is what God has revealed. This is what God expects from you. This is what you have to do. What am I supposed to do? How do I choose and pick? If I had missionaries knocking on your door, then I have an off day and I'm really bored, stiff and uh, cranky and so forth, and a missionary comes to the door, I open the door. <laughs> and I even invite them in. <laughs> and uh, very nice, uh, they decide to have some fun, uh, pick me out from things so maybe I can back, get back to work. Yes, sir, what, what can I do for you? I have good news for you. Wow, I'm great, I'm so happy. Pick up any newspaper, no good news whatsoever. Here's somebody finding this good news. Um, what is it? Eternal salvation. Wow. How much? For free. For free? Just like that? Yeah, well, there is a price, but not in money. What you have to do is read this book and follow its instructions. And that will guarantee you eternal salvation. I said, wow, that's great. And then I 
start turning and leaving through the book, and I say, but after I have to spend so much time reading that and then trying to apply it, how do I know that it's really going to work? Oh, yes, the book promises that to you. And why should I accept this promise? Because this book would not lie to you. How do I know that? Because this book is all truth. How do I know that? Because this book, you see, is a very special book. It's the Word of God. Oh, right. And tell me, how do you know it's the Word of God? Oh, because the book says so. <laughs> so well, who cares what the book says? This book would not lie. Why not? Because this book is all about the truth. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And how do you know it's the Word of God? The book says so, and it goes out and out. And that's what basically all books of this kind say. Maybe some of them are revelations. The problem is I have no way of knowing. And if I have no way of knowing, I have a very serious problem. Why do you pick book A and reject book B? You can't just arbitrarily choose and pick. The moment, since all have basically the same criteria, the same standards for self-verification, then they all stand on the same level. So the moment you accept one, you are really stuck to accept all the others as well unless you can show some fundamental difference, which does not depend on your personal, subjective, emotional aspects. If you can't, either accept all of them, or the other alternative, reject all of them. That is the big quandary, the big problem with religion, with revelation. What about Judaism? Judaism offhand has the same problem, except for one thing. Our revelation, the Torah, is not simply the way you have it in every other religion, that some individual shows up on the scene and claims, I've been sent by God, I'm a prophet, etc., etc. Here's the message. This week's Torah reading, which we'll be reading tomorrow, and the Torah reading of next week, speaks exactly about such cases, where people show up and suddenly claim, I'm a prophet of God, this is the revelation that God sent. How do I know whether he's a true prophet or not? Uh, the Torah suggests, in this week's Torah reading, ask him to perform a sign. Ask him to perform a miracle. If he doesn't, he's unable to, there's nobody to talk to, it's not a crackpot down the street. If he does, now at least he's able to do so, now at least you know you have somebody to talk to. Hey, this is not just uh, some Tom, Dick, and Harry off the street. There's something, something there. And then ask him, now what's the message? Then the Torah says, now listen carefully to the message. If the message conforms to the Torah, Yes, he's a prophet. If it violates even one iota of the Torah, you know he's a false prophet. And don't be impressed by the miracle or the signs or the supernatural feats that he has performed. And if you should ask, how was he able to do so? After all, only God can confer powers like that. And so the Pasha says to us, God is testing you. Are you going after the smoke and mirrors or are you going after substance? Miracles, shmiracles, all these miraculous things, that's smoke and mirrors. It's very impressive. And there is something to it. But that's not the substance. The substance lies in the message. How do you test message? Back to square one. If you have a Torah, you have something to check it against. If you don't have a Torah, you have nothing to check it against. But then why do I take the Torah as my standard? Why should I accept the, the checking against the Torah? We hear about miracles and all that in New Testament, about making the blind seeing, the water, the lame walking, resurrecting the dead for that matter, the whole works, fish and loaves, uh, uh, the, the whole works. And uh, 
So a very common Jewish reaction is, ah, this is all baloney, it's all fairy tales. You don't have to dismiss it as fairy tales. I'm prepared to accept every one of the miracles related in the New Testament. Every one of them. Including that he was able to resurrect the dead and make the blind seeing and the lame walking, etc. And including that he himself was resurrected. Not arguing with them. Yes, sure, it's true. What do I care? And say, well, then does that mean something to you? I said, no, it means nothing to me. If I see that he has resurrected somebody, what do I know? Or if I see that he himself has resurrected, what do I know? I know he has resurrected somebody. I know he was resurrected. I know he's now alive. Well, doesn't that mean something to you? Yes, of course, it means a lot to me. Namely, he's now alive. <laughs> and what conclusions do you draw? He's alive. Before he was dead, and now he's alive. But doesn't that mean something? Yes, he's alive. Yeah, but doesn't that mean something more beyond that? I said, look, that's all I have seen. That's all I have experienced. That's all I can make a judgment on. The reasons for it or against it, I have no clue. I, I can give you a thousand different possibilities. Doesn't the Torah itself tell us that Moses performed miracles in Egypt? He came before Pharaoh. He took a plain stick, a walking stick, made it turn into a snake. What did Pharaoh do? He burst out laughing. You're importing coals to Newcastle. We are the masters of black magic. And he called his magicians and they took their sticks, zapped them, turned them into snakes as well. Moses made water turn into blood. <laughs> Big deal. Hey, come here. There's one, two, three, abracadabra, water turning into blood. Moses produced the frog there. They did the same thing. Okay, the little insects they couldn't do. So they went up to, up to date with the latest journals of black magic. So they didn't want to be fired, so they said to Pharaoh, oh, this must be the finger of God. Baloney, admit, you just didn't keep up. You, 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 you got comfortable in your job. So we see that there, what we call the koichas the forces of evil and impurity, are able to do the same thing. So therefore, what do I not conclude? Miracles don't mean a thing. Miracles don't mean a thing. If you were to erase all the miracles of the whole Bible, nothing in the Bible would change, not one iota. Miracles serve only one purpose. They get your attention. That's why people go to nightclubs. You hire a magician for your, for your parties at home, and then they pull a 50-foot rope out of your nose, Susan Anthony out of your ears, and you stand there, wow! They get Houdini. To this day, we don't know how Houdini performs some of his tricks. You stand there, wow! How does this do it? Does anybody believe that that is indeed some kind of supernatural thing? You haven't got a clue how to do it. Some of them you can study up, and you're going to break your head to try and figure out how you could possibly have done that. But you're not going to assume, just because he has performed these tricks, that here is a divine person who has a divine message, who is connected with God, and is able to turn everything, the laws of nature, on the head. I've said that. No, you don't. It's, it's a trick, illusion. Call it whatever you like. That's exactly what the miracles are. How do you even know that something is a miracle? Once upon a time, uh, thunder and lightning were regarded as miracles. Supernatural. Today we know what is thunder? The angels moving the furniture up in heaven. <laughs> Makes a lot of noise. That's all thunder is. A lightning? Uh, I don't know, somebody's doing a flashlight up there, and they have powerful flashlights it's up there, I suppose. Today we have simple natural explanations of all these events. So, what is a miracle? It's a very serious problem. At which point can you say about something that it is a miracle? 
But that's not my concern, because miracles are not something that would ever prove or indicate something. I'm getting off topic completely. I have to get back to Bible criticism, and we can talk, talk and this and that, so I'm getting just, but just to give the importance why this is such a crucial point to me. Uh, our basis in the Torah is basically that we do not believe in the Torah because of Moses. As a matter of fact, we couldn't care less about Moses. No religion in the world is like that. Every religion depends on its prophet. Without J.C., there's no Christianity. Without Muhammad, there's no Islam. There's no Quran without him. There's no New Testament without him. Well, sure, he didn't write it. His apostles did. But still, that is the central figure. With us, if you were to take Moses out of the picture, it would change one iota. You couldn't care less about Moses. In every religion, you start with the prophet. From the prophet, you move to the Bible. And then you move to whatever he believes you have. With us, we turn things upside down. We start with the Bible. From the Bible, we move to the prophet. And why do we go to the Bible first? Because our Bible is not based on what Moses claims that God spoke to him. Our Bible is based on what we call a public revelation. Every prophet that comes says, God has spoken to me. You have no way in the world of ever verifying that unless you were standing there behind the, the, the wall, behind the curtain, and listening in and seeing it. So. Why do I believe in these prophets? Well, either he's a charismatic individual or because uh, I like his message. With us, it's not that way. With us, Moses predicted, told to the people, when I will take you out from the land of Egypt, the 50th day, giving the precise date, giving the precise location, will all be at this place called Sinai, and there God will speak to you directly. Speak to you, not to one individual, but a public revelation, which we talk about 600,000 people between the ages of 20 and 60. It's all those younger, all those older, uh, their wives, uh, all the schleppers that came along from Egypt. You have a minimum amount of approximately 3 million people. 3 million people who had an exactly identical experience of what they saw and what they heard. And the most important part of what really happened at Sinai is not the Ten Commandments. Couldn't care less about those. The most important thing that happened at Sinai, if God had merely appeared and said, Hi guys, nice meeting you. Isn't that how God started? I'm Hashem, your God. It's like saying, Hi guys, remember me? We just met in Egypt. I just took you out from there. Bye, nice. If that's all that happened, or even God would not have said a word. But simply said, Hi, no more. That's enough. Why is that enough? That would have shown that the prophecy that Moses gave, God played along. God did appear on that day, at that time, in that place, exactly as was told to them already months and months and months and months before. What does that show? One thing and one thing, basically, more, most important than all, that Moses, yes, he is my true prophet. Because I have now verified that what he told you about me is indeed the truth. Now I don't have to hear God's voice anymore. Whatever Moshe, whatever Moses is going to come and tell me now and says, God told me to tell you this, God told me to tell you this. Hey, God has already put his stamp of approval, he notarized, certified, uh, whatever you, you want, that Moses is true prophet. That is the significance of the Torah for us. Without that, and Judaism is the only religion that has what we call this public revelation, which Christianity accepts. They accept, yes, there was a public revelation. Islam accepts, yes, there's a public revelation. Now, if we look at the Torah, we see something very strange. We know Torah comes to us from Moses, that's what we believe. But then we have scholars here over the course of time who have looked at the Torah and say there's something strange here in this book. If you look, for example, at the, the first book of the Torah alone, the first chapter tells you about creation of the world. 
Second chapter gives you a slightly modified story of the creation. And it's not only that there are certain additional details which were never mentioned in the first chapter, uh, and certain things are mentioned in the first chapter which are not mentioned in the second chapter, which would suggest there are two creation stories. But also, if you look very carefully at the Chumash, you'll see that in the first chapter of Breshis, uh, God has many different names. Hashem, Kael, Elohim, Shakai, Tzvois, you name it. Never mind the euphemistic names, the compassionate, the merciful, etc., etc. There are seven basic names which are regarded as very holy. And then on top of that, so many others. And if you look very carefully, and we all know, deep, the most basic name of God is the one that we never pronounce. The four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton, Yud, K, Vov, K. It was only pronounced in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Uh, but the, the high priest on Yom Kippur several times, and every priest, whenever they used to bless the people, what we call them the Bichas Kredim. Uh, but only there, nowhere else. And it's not even necessarily the way the vowels appear in our Humoshim and in our Sidurim that these are the correct vowels. It was a special way of even pronouncing that, which was kept pretty much secret. And which was taught only once every seven years, passed on to the next generation. And after a while, in the, the latter part of the Second Temple, they refused to teach it because they saw people are no longer up on that moral level. So it's whoever knew it, knew it, and whoever didn't, it was kept secret, that was it. So we don't even know how to pronounce it, even though in English they usually put it the way the vowel system is. In, in the, the Christians, they spell out this name and so forth. But if you if we look at the first chapter, there's only one name of God that appears there. Not once, not twice, 32 times. Elohim. Beginning of the second chapter, all of a sudden we are introduced to a new name of God. Yudke Vovke. Hashem Elohim. Suddenly there's a new name and attached to the Hashem Elohim. So the author, the, so some people studying analyzing the Bible, they look at this and say there's something, something going on here. Why here only this name and here suddenly get this name and that name now pretty much becomes the most prominent name even though the Hashem Elohim also is mentioned throughout as well. Besides, how come two creation stories? If I write the book, you have to be systematic, you have to be organized, etc., etc. Get your act together, put all the details there. Here you have details in the first chapter, different details in the second chapter. Then if you look more carefully at the Bible, you go further on, you'll see there are a number of strange inconsistencies. For example, uh, in the book of Genesis, there are lots of genealogical tables. You have the genealogical tables of the ten generations from Adam to Noah, the ten generations from Noah to Abraham. Uh, that's fine and good, simply giving us a line, your roots, where you come from. Uh, but then later on, and we can understand more or less why they are there. But then later, as you look carefully, all of a sudden you see that the Torah veers from its subject matter, from its topics in the history of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and goes into genealogical tables of Asaf, the arch enemy of Israel. Sure, he was, a, he was a grandson of Abraham. He was a son of Yitzhak, the patriarchs, a brother of Jacob. But we have really nothing to do with him. Who cares about his, his descendants for who knows how many generations? And who cares about all the kings that ruled in Edom? Why would the Torah go, oh, okay, Torah for whatever reason. Give you some kind of historical card. Okay, fine. But then the Torah introduces that particular section. These are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before they reigned a king in Israel. Before they reigned a king in Israel? When was the first king in Israel? Hundreds and hundreds of years later. The first king was King Saul. 
And it gives you pretty much a list going pretty much without generation. That, that's absurd. Some commentators want to say, no, before the reign of the king in Israel, does not refer to King Saul. It refers to the first king of Israel. Who is the first king of Israel? Technically, is Moses. Moses is called the king. Melech Israel. Melech. So it refers to that. But uh, there are so many generations there that it doesn't really make sense. Others want to say, well, it's by way of prophecy. And uh, the critics, of course, will say, ah, what does that show beyond a shadow of a doubt? Obviously, this was written at a much, much later date. For that matter, they will look at more carefully at the text, using now all the devices and all the premises of what is called literary criticism. And according to these, you detect style. You detect a certain uh, context. You, you detect the way an author writes. You can recognize whether this book was written by this author or this book was written by that author. Every author, it's just as you have your own fingerprints, uh, you also have your certain style of, uh, of the way you express yourself, etc., etc. There are certain expressions that come about, there are certain ideas, certain notions, certain things that you emphasize, the whole works. So they say if you look carefully at the Chumash, and that's where the criticism originally started, uh, you can note that there are completely different styles. And for that matter, completely different contents. The book of Genesis, okay, generally historical accounts. Book of Exodus is part historical, and then you get a whole half section of, of the whole book, which deals basically with the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the desert. Then you get the book of Leviticus, which is dealing basically just with the priestly code, relating to the priests and whatever relates to them, the Kohanim, and their service in the temple. Then you get Bamidbar, which is again going somewhat historical, but from a different context, the wanderings in the desert, events that happened there, and then Deuteronomy, which even we say the very name Deuteronomy. What does Deuteronomy mean? Deuteronomy is the English or the Latin translation, actually, of the Hebrew expression Mishne Torah. What is Mishne Torah? Repetition of the Torah. The whole book of Deuteronomy was long, one long speech. We met Moshe for the first time there in Pasha Shmois. God comes to him and sends him down to Egypt. What does Moshe say? I can't speak, I, I, must, I stumble, I stammer, etc., etc. Comes to Pasha's in Deuteronomy, he starts on Rosh Chodesh Shvat, and for 37 days uninterrupted, keeps talking and talking and talking. The whole book is one long speech. Moses is a farewell speech. Why is it called repetition of the Torah? Uh, because he repeats many of the laws especially what we read last week and the week before, uh, where he counts all the details and the events of what happened at Sinai, emphasizing in greater detail than I just did about the verification and the demonstration of the truth, of the public revelation that you are the only nation in the whole world that ever had this experience and ever will have this experience. That this was a public revelation, not something that you simply accept on belief and on faith, but something that you know from personal experience, and not just that you may have experienced that, but the whole nation did. If you have doubts about yourself, you should uh, ask your neighbor. He was standing right there next to you, and the one behind you, and the one before you, and ten rows over, and this, etc., etc. So whatever doubts you have, you can verify that. Um, going all the way to the end, which means it's again a completely different context. Um, now, these questions, these inconsistencies, oh, not even mentioned another one. If you look carefully at the Bible, you can even find their contradictions. That certain verses will contradict other verses. Blatant contradictions. Now, give me a break. God doesn't go around contradicting himself. If you go around contradicting yourself, how will they know what to do, how to read it, how to, how to interpret it? And God certainly is not inconsistent. Uh, God's 
has something in mind. There must be, it, it's, if it's from one author, and as we claim going back all the way to the days of Moses, that Moses composed the Torah, then how can you have all these inconsistencies? They are by different styles, different vocabulary, etc., etc. These questions were asked already by the sages in the Talmud, by the Midrashim. Contradictions appear in our writings uh, pretty much from day one. If those of you who are familiar with the morning prayers, uh, before we start the actual prayers, the supplications to God, with Hoidu, there is what we call the Korbonus section. And at the, in the Korbonus section, there at the end, we have a whole chapter from Rishnayis. And at the end of Rishnayis, we have a whole section from what is called the Torah's Koinim, the Sifor, uh, because we, we recited the blessings in the morning. One of the blessings is the blessings over the Torah. So we don't want to, just like when you make a moitzi, make a bread, you don't wait to bite into the bread later on in the day, but you right away put it in your mouth. So we make the, this blessing of the Torah, the, the commandment of Torah study, so right away we start learning. So right away we recite some of these passages. And these are pa chosen passages from, from the Bible, passages from the Mishnah, passages from what we call the later generation for that. And one of these is the last section before Haidu, which starts Rabbi Shmuel Hoyana. Rabbi Shmuel used to say, what did Rabbi Shmuel used to say? He gives a list there of 13 fundamental principles of legitimate interpretation of the Torah. These are the 13 forms of legitimate hermeneutical interpretation. It's like certain logical or mathematical rules or axioms that if you have this and that, you can draw these and those inferences, these and those conclusions. The last one of these 13 is the following. You'll find in the Bible two verses that will contradict one the other. We recognize, we spell it out, no, yes, guess what? We have contradictions in the Bible. What do I do then? So Rabbi Shemal continues. Keep reading. Keep looking. May not be right there, may not be right there, but if you keep reading and looking and studying carefully, you'll soon find the third verse which will reconcile these two. The point I'm trying to bring out is you're not unaware of these things. Not unaware of that. But for an outsider, this looks strange. And therefore, this brought about what we call biblical criticism, in which they now developed a certain theory. Number one, obviously, there must have been many different authors. Uh, for example, we have those documents which use the Shem Elohim. They call these, these were written by the author of the E documents. E is standing for Elohim. Where you have the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, these documents were written by an author who used the J name. That's why they call the J documents. Then you have Leviticus, which is a completely different style, a completely different content, uh, different uh, things than the first two books, that they call the P code meaning the priestly code. Then you have the Deuteronomy, which is again a, a, a chapter on its own, a section on its own. They call it the D documents. So they have come up that there must be at least four strands of different schools of different authors who compose different works, the E, the J, the P, and the D. Then they go into the more modern they got, they went into more sophisticated research, and they dis discovered within each of these codes there are also variances. 
So the developer is an E1, an E2, E3, E4, J1, J2, J3, etc., etc. P1, P2, P3. So the same, in one and the same verse, they will sometimes analyze and say, well, this part is written from the E code, this one is from the G, J author, this from the P, and this from the D, etc., etc. Now, in literary criticism, you want to do that with somebody's book, fine, <laughs> I guess. You say, well, here was influenced by Shakespeare, here was influenced by Bacon, here was influenced by Whitehead, here was influenced by this. Uh, fine, what do I care? And for all you know, it's possible. Even though the author himself may say, I, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, I never saw these works, whatever it may be. Um, so say they have these, all these different authors. And then came what they called the redactor. You call it editor. He took all these different manuscripts and kind of devised a super manuscript in which he reconciled and put them together into one running work. And that became the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Homish. Now, if that is, uh, but obviously, uh, especially if they want to trace back certain things, obviously must have been written much later in time, or were influenced by certain other chronologically inconsistent conditions which are suggested in the text. So in short, that the, certainly the Homish, the five books of Moses, never mind the later books of the Bible, are from a much, much later date. Uh, we have some, like I said, most of these criticisms have already been uttered by our own sages. And some of them, even by the uh, Bible commentators, one of the most famous Bible commentators of the 11th century was Ibn Ezra. He makes some very enigmatic comments that he touches already way hundreds of years before these critics came about about certain things. And, he's, and all he says, he just touches it. He says, this is a mystical passage, the understanding person will keep his mouth shut. Don't say anything. We'll just pass over this in the meantime. If you understand, you understand, you don't understand that. Which has been taken by later generations. Ah, he's already alluding to these, and he is probably already the first closet uh, Bible critic in these terms. It came to pretty much a big head in the 17th century, 18th century, uh, with another one of our own people, Spinoza. Spinoza went into great detail into showing because he wanted to show you. He did believe that definitely parts that go back to Moses. But uh, he says definitely there are parts that have been inserted later on, uh, interpolations, uh, editing, um, and so forth. And criticizing sharply Rambam especially. Rambam who upheld, who made it one of the 13 principles of the faith, uh, that we have to believe that the Torah that we have is the Torah written by Moses and uh, nothing can supersede this Torah. Uh, that's why in this week's Torah reading, as I said before, if anybody ever makes any religious claims whatsoever, he says, he have come from God. God revealed himself to me. There's only one way that you can check that, not by observing miracles, not by observing supernatural feats. One way, check it out against the Torah. If it conforms to everything in the Torah, yes, maybe he's a prophet. I have no reason to suspect it not. If there is ever one iota, the slightest little thing, that conflicts with it, you know he's a false prophet. Why? Because the Torah you know to, to be 100% divine revelation. So therefore, God does not go around contradict himself. Therefore, anything that conflicts with that, you know that it is false. <coughs> and obviously, this becomes from the fundamental principles of the Jewish faith. Moses becomes the supreme prophet. He's not the only prophet, but no one's prophecy ever superseded that of Moses. He's the one that God spoke kind of face to face, mouth to mouth. Direct revelation, but as others it was more indirect, through visions, through dreams, whatever it is. And Moses, he has the final word. This is Torah's Moshe, we call it. 
the Torah of Moses. Um, so um, Spinoza attacks Maimonides and he says, look here, Maimonides is playing game. Maimonides was a very smart man. He recognized the difficulties in many religious matters. He wrote a whole book called The Guide for the Perplexed to kind of reconcile Revelation, Torah, with philosophy, with science, with all the challenges that have come about from Aristotelianism, which was so prevalent in his days, and what have you. However, uh, he, he backs, bends over backwards. He sometimes gives drastic reinterpretations of verses, for which he has been challenged, became quite controversial, but basically he keeps defending the Torah. Uh, so Spinoza attacks him and says, Maimonides is playing games. He's taking for granted that the Torah is true, that everything in the Torah is the word of God, and if the Torah is true and everything is the word of God, so obviously he's going to defend and come up with all kinds of answers to justify the, that the Torah is correct and whatever the critic says is incorrect. He says that's playing games. If you are truly a philosopher, truly a scientist, you have to keep an open mind and let the chips fall wherever they may. If that will contradict and explode your theory, your whole outlook, so be it. As Maimonides emphasizes time and time again, accept truth regardless of its source. Whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. Truth is the only thing that matters. And by repeating things, that doesn't make it true. Uh, and if it becomes popular, that doesn't make it true either. The whole world agrees with you, that doesn't mean that you're correct. If the whole world disagrees with you, it does not mean that you're wrong. Truth stands on its own two feet. Um, that is his criticism. Then it re the real development of biblical criticism came in the 19th century. 19th century, especially there was a fellow, there was lots of people along, all along the line, but we just mentioned this one, the most prominent one, which is called Graf. There was first a fellow called Graf in Germany, and then there was another fellow who was called Wellhausen. They developed, they, they went beyond the five books of Moses. They, they eventually took the whole Bible under their hands. And they developed the whole theories about how the whole things developed, etc., etc. Very sharp criticism, totally, drastically, radically denying any mosaic authorship for it. Um, even attributing things to idolatrous sources uh, and what have you. Uh, this became pretty much the predominant school, which was accepted in academia. This became the academic approach. Um, later in the 20th century, you have these developing further different schools. Uh, a lot of which was taken at, at face value from what Graf, these two were then combined, Graf Wellhausen it's called, um, became, was criticized, was ripped apart, not by people who necessarily accepted the divine authorship of the Torah. No, they also believed it was uh, different authors and, and later edited together, uh, but they took a different approach to it, less radical, less drastic, uh, less revolutionary than Graf Wellhausen. Uh, you have what is called the Scandinavian school, you have an American school, you have, you have different schools that developed in the 20th century. Um, each one trying to come up with some kind of a reasonable uh, hypothesis of how the Bible was written. Um, some do not necessarily deny that there are historical roots. Divine revelation, of course, is out of the picture because if it comes from God, it's an altogether different ballgame. Um, and it's just a question of when, how, who, uh, etc. Now, today I don't think there's a single person on earth that will not, well, before we go to that, let's go first back, how, how do we respond to some of these criticisms? One already I told you about contradictions. Contradictions, we definitely, yes, we acknowledge our verses which contradict one another. The, the Talmud, the Medrash, they pointed out themselves. 
and say, here you have this saying this, and there you have saying that, the exact opposite. How can that be? And then they bring out, look at this, here you have the answer. And uh, the Torah had to write it here in, in this context, this way, and in that context, that way. Uh, certainly, you come and derive a whole lot of things out of that, that is not even as a, not just not a blatant contradiction, but there is even a lesson, there's a moral in it, and may even have practical implications. As for the difference in names, every name of God that we give to God uh, exemplifies and symbolizes a certain attribute of God. Elohim comes from the Hebrew word Eil. Eil is also a name of God in its own right. What does the word Eil mean? Because Eil and Elohim appear not only as divine names, they also appear as secular words. For example, angels are called Elohim. Judges on earth are called Elohim. Rulers are called Elohim. So Elohim becomes a kind of a generic term for something of rulership, something of power. That's what the word Eil means. Eil really means power, strength. And so there where God manifests his strength, so there we usually refer to as Elohim. So therefore sometimes when you refer to God, we say Elohim. When you refer to it in different contexts, you can spell it out, Elohim. Nothing wrong with that. There's Elohim, the powerful, the strong of the earth, etc. The Bnei Elohim, the sons of God, etc., which can refer to the sons of the rulers, as you have them in Parshas Breshis, or it can refer to the, to the judges, it can refer to lots of things. Elohim, according to the mystics, also has a different connotation. The numerical equivalent of the word is 86. 86 is the same number as the numerical equivalent for the Hebrew word hateva, nature. The first chapter of Genesis, where God creates the world. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and then God was all darkness, and God said, that there'll be light, and there was light. All the story there for the whole first seven days, only the name Elohim appears. Why? Because in that first chapter, God created not just the world. The world is, what is the world? The world is nature. Nature is a teva. So there God manifests himself as he is manifest in nature. Nature, the laws of nature, is a reality. Except that laws of nature were created by God. When God chooses, he can suspend these laws of nature. But still, God wants to run the world according to a certain program, according to a certain system, which we call the laws of nature. That is the Shem Elohim. What is the Shem Hashem? That's something altogether different. All the names of God have some meaning. If you look at this name, it has no meaning whatsoever. There's no word, no root to it. It's a meaningless word. Yud, okay, okay. So what kind of a name is that? So come to me and say, yes, this, is, this name also has a meaning. It, has, it seems to have no meaning as one word, but that word is really a compound of three words. All from the same root. What are the three words? Hoyo, hoive, yige. Was, is, will be. So if you compound these three words together, you get this the fall at the name of God, the ineffable name. What does that name signify? Just what this compound is. Was, is, will be. Meaning infinity, beyond time, beyond anything. Elohim is God in the world. God manifests in the world. God in nature. Shemavaya, Yudke Vovke. That's how God transcends everything. That's where the Elohim itself can be transcended and superseded. These are the miracles of the chapter in the Bible. That's Shemavaya. But Shemavaya, Yudke Vovke, that is the essence of God. 
And this was the whole battle of Egypt. Why did God bring so many plagues upon Egypt? Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they recognized the Lakim, they recognized God. But they recognized God only in so far that yes, there is a law of nature, and uh, this is it. That's how the world runs. It's a big computer. And the computer is garbage in, garbage out. It runs according to the program. The whole idea of what happened in the Exodus was to let the world know, in order that they know that I am Hashem. What means I am Hashem? That I stand beyond the world. And I create the world and I can change everything in the world. That is the ultimate faith. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Yudkei Vovkei, Elokeinu. Hashem, Yudkei Vovkei, Echot. That's what it's all about. Um, and so likewise for everything else. For these, uh, there are certain things which uh, we would admit, yes, they are maybe chronologically inconsistent, but that is my way of prophecy. But the Torah used an expression, for example, that this was its name, or this is what it would happen. At Hayoy Mazay, until this day. On which the commentators know this means eternally so. So we say, but At Hayoy how would you know three and a half thousand years ago that this would still be now in the, in the year uh, 2009? Yes, there's prophecy, after all. Revelation is prophecy. That's the definition of prophecy. So that is not an issue. Um, the various critics, let's go first to Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza has a valid point when he criticizes Rambam, Maimonides. Yes, I mean, once you have committed yourself to a certain position, then obviously you're going to bend over backwards to defend it, regardless of what criticism you've got come up with. It may be the best in the world, but hey, this is it. Uh, I can't, I can't uh, surrender what I have here. So therefore, you've got to bend up over and then go into sophistry and all kinds of pulling, etc., etc., to solve it that makes sense, makes no sense. Yes, there's a valid criticism in that. We all do that all the time, don't we? We have preconceived notions and bend over backwards to defend them. So Spinoza's criticism of Rambam and Jewish tradition seems valid. And we seem to simply dismiss real criticism. My response to that is a very simple one. Hey, you guys. What are you criticizing us for? You are doing exactly that which you accuse me of. How so? You are taking my Bible and you're analyzing it. You're subjected to literal criticism, going through it with a fine comb and saying, here's this and here's that and here's that, and therefore there is an inconsistency and therefore this has to be wise, therefore this and that, therefore this and that and that. Yes, yes, if you take a book and you analyze it, that you're 100% correct. But guess what? You can only do that with a simple, regular book written by simple, regular human beings. If that is divine revelation, then all your standards and all your criteria and all your methodologies and all your exercises of literary criticism become totally irrelevant. The moment the critic takes the Bible and says, I'm going to examine and analyze it the way I do any other book without prejudice, he has already shown prejudice. He has already committed himself that this is a book like any other book. In philosophy and logic, we call that begging the question, a circular argument. In other words, first you take for granted that this book is like any other book. And if it's like any other book, therefore it can be analyzed and criticized, etc., 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 etc. Then I analyze it and criticize it, and now from the criticism and the analysis, I now conclude it's a book like every other book. 
It's like the missionary. This book is all the truth. Why? Because the book is the word of God. How do you know? Because the book says so. That's exactly what they are doing. Yes, we admit, I'm committed to the Bible because I really believe, because of historical reasons, not logical or philosophical or theological, what have you, but historical reasons, that it was a public revelation at Sinai. And from that, we have this unbroken chain of tradition. This is what was composed by Moses. That's what we have. Uh, but you come out of nowhere. First, you make a judgment on the book that it's this, and then you say, well, because of my analysis, now you have just proven that it is like everybody else. Um, one more point. Um, the various criticism, forget about the traditional responses, even in, the, in academia, have been torn apart. Graf Wellhausen especially. Graf Wellhausen has, has holes shot through it, not by religious people, not talking about that, we're talking about academia, that is certainly consistency in his, in his approach, and as a matter of fact, um, has very often been accused, both Graf and especially Wellhausen, the popularity of biocriticism, especially as it's called higher criticism, which was a certain Jewish scholar who once referred to that higher criticism is really higher anti-Semitism. And that's not meant as a joke. That was a big motivation. Anti-Semitism was a big motivation in 19th century Bible criticism, especially the Graf Wellhausen. He was in, Graf Wellhausen particularly was a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, many of the others who were pro became prominent anti-Semites. Uh, what was, how does anti-Semitism come in that? After all, don't the Christians also take the old, call it Old Testament? It's your own Bible! Yeah, but if the Old Testament is the foundation, and everything has to build on that, and it becomes the ultimate criterion, this means it's the Jews who brought all this in the world. So it was a way of kind of knocking the Jews. This has been today pretty much universally acknowledged that anti-Semitism definitely played a big role in that. Um, but besides that, even without that, it's full of holes. Um, then there are other theories uh, who also believe in criticism, but take it from a different angle, different school. They also have holes, um, which now raises a question. Who do we go by? Well, like so many other fields, especially academia, you, you pick your, your school, your theory, and so forth. I have a book here with me, especially brought it along, uh, by a professor of Bible studies, a non-Jew, a believer in Bible criticism, who taught it, Professor Raulias, he was a professor in Manchester University. He died, I think, just about two, three years ago. He wrote many books, and he, he wrote a very simple text, simple in the sense of summarizing and bringing down, uh, called The Goals of the Old Testament. The first part is dealing just with the Humish, the rest of the book uh, with all the other books, parts of the Bible. And here is there an interesting paragraph which I find fascinating and which summarizes literally everything what it's all about. He says, yes, that so many different theories have developed and evolved. And you can really choose and pick. However, we stick with Graf Wellhausen. Even though Graf Wellhausen has been shot down, not once, not twice, not 10 times, not 100 times, he's full of holes. Why do we stick with Graf Wellhausen? Very simple reason, he says. He says, all the, some of the other theories are much better. However, they are much better, but they are only very limited. Only limited to this book, to that area of the Bible, but Graf Wellhausen is comprehensive. He takes in the whole thing. Read what he says here. His concluding paragraph on the Chumash. It will be seen that there's a considerable variety. I'm concluding with that. I'm getting warning signs right, left, and center. 
Well, I get back this criticism. Uh, okay, it will be seen that there is a considerable variety of view in recent years, and it is sometimes supposed that the Graf Wellhausen view is universally discredited and rejected. That it is widely rejected in whole or in part is doubtless true. But there is no view to put in its place that would not be more widely and emphatically rejected. Few of the rival views have won any adherence at all, while the Graf Wellhausen view has still a respectable following. Before it can be discarded, a view as complete and thoroughgoing, taking account of all the facts related to history, will have to be provided. A mere concentration on the acknowledged difficulties of the Garvelhausen view, and then on a selection of points that may seem to give support to a rival view, will not do. For none of the rival views can accommodate so many of the facts, or can escape far more difficulties than the view it seeks to replace. Yet having said this, it remains true that the Garvelhausen view is only a working hypothesis, which can be abandoned with alacrity when a more satisfying view is found, but which cannot with profit be abandoned until then. Plain English translation, it's rubbish, it's nonsense, it has got a leg to stand on, but guess what? I have nothing better. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. Now, this sounds absurd. In fairness to the author, in fairness to basically, that's what science is really all about. What does that mean? In science, there are some basic criteria that the worst theory is still better than what? Than no theory. Because if it's the worst theory, at least you have something to work with. Another rule in the scientific method is that something more comprehensive that will cover more bases, even though faulty and weak, is still better than something which is much stronger but only covers one or two bases. Because here again, because we are looking for overall answers, we're not looking at answers just this particular question. But as a final response, uh, he says we have nothing better. My, our answer, of course, is going to be what? You bet we have something better. We have what, uh, what we call our historical tradition the unbroken chain of tradition going back three and a half thousand years to Sinai, which is not a philosophical argument, it's not a theological argument, it's not a belief argument, it's an argument the same as we would use for any historical event of the past that happened, on what grounds do you accept a certain event having happened, whatever criteria you use in philosophy of history, that's exactly what we use for the event at Sinai. Don't like it because you don't like the consequences? Too bad but we do have an alternative. Thank you.